Father, we just come before you today, and Lord, we just want to say thank you that we can sing songs like this. And they're not just songs. They're not just stories about other people's lives, but they can be true in our life each and every day. Lord, we're thankful that this thing called faith is real, and it can be a vital and, Lord, the most important part of each and every day of our lives. Lord, we've come to worship you. We ask that you would accept our singing, the special music. Lord, I pray that the preaching would direct our hearts toward you and your word. So that when we get to the time of invitation, that there would be not a one here that would withhold from you what is justly your due. Help us to understand your word. That our worship may not be confined only to this service, but every moment of every day of the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go to the book of Luke. Book of Luke chapter 14. And uh, we're going to look at what is basically known as a very difficult passage of Scripture this morning. And uh, before we actually even get into the full introduction of the message, I'd like you to understand that this morning's message is simply uh, the first part of a longer message that I hope by God's grace to, uh, to preach next Sunday morning. Uh, this, this Sunday morning is the price of faith, uh, and next Sunday morning would be the rewards of faith. And so... Uh, we're, we're going to be dealing with a passage of Scripture that uh, most uh, commentators, when you read them, uh, they go, well, um, <clears throat> maybe Jesus didn't mean exactly what he said when he said what he said here, or they try to explain it away. And we're, we're not afraid of any verse that's in the Bible. We're not afraid of any word that is in the Bible. Uh, Jesus said what he meant, and he meant what he said, but you have to take things in the overall context of the passage. And in Luke chapter 14, uh, we have Jesus in verse 1. He is uh, in the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread. It was the Sabbath day. And, of course, they were watching Jesus. They were trying to find some way that they could discredit him, that they could remove him from the realm of public debate, uh, because Jesus was literally crowding out the chief priest and and the Pharisees. They were the people. The the priest had uh, charge of the temple, the complex of the temple itself, and the Pharisees, they were in charge of most of the synagogues in the land of Israel. And so, therefore, if you were going to understand uh, their Bible, if you were going to teach in the synagogue, you had to kind of go to their school. And uh, they, they had charge of that. And all of a sudden, this guy Jesus shows up and starts poking holes in everything that they do and mocking their traditions and and out and out denouncing them as hypocrites. And, of course, we were in, in Sunday school this morning. We went through the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the, the main points that we were bringing out is the fact that truth cannot be covered up. It cannot be molded. It cannot be shaped. Uh, if you ever hear someone saying, well, that's your truth. You have to understand something. You you can't have a real conversation with that person because truth is a moldable thing to them. Uh, If it can belong to you, it's not truth. Because truth does not need your testimony to be true. Truth doesn't need you. We need truth, amen? That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And, and we get here to uh, chapter 14, and, and Jesus 
just had told them this parable of the marriage supper. And he ends it with this summary in verse 24. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now what Jesus was really saying here is, none of you people that think you have a relationship with God are even going to make it to heaven. And you have to understand a little bit about the culture here was, you know, you had your house and your house was normally connected to a courtyard of some kind and, and uh, there was a private part of the house that was separated from the rest, but there was a part of your house that was, was basically public where people could be walking by in the street and know what was going on. And, of course, that was very advantageous for the uh, more well-to-do kind of people. They could show off everything without inviting everyone into the house and having to pay for it, you know. And, And so as Jesus was having this conversation here, of course, the curious uh, began to get around. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees again. And so everybody came and was trying to listen in. And Jesus, verse 25, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus believed in the power of positive preaching, did he not? That wasn't very positive, now was it? Uh, I don't think you'll ever hear Joel Olstein preach on this verse. Uh, I think I'm pretty safe in making that statement. I mean, this is a very, very negative verse. And, And... If you read most commentaries, they'll usually end up after quite a circuitous route of saying, well, your love for Jesus in comparison to your love for your wife should seem like hatred. Now, I I want to be a simple man, Jesus said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And with my simple little mind, I can't even wrap it around that statement. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Does it to anybody here? How can your love for somebody appear to be hatred compared to something else? When the Bible tells me very clearly that if I want to love the children of God, I need to love God and keep His commandments. Uh, The Bible says that if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an infidel and you're denied the faith. And see, this is one of those little verses where people come and say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. Now, let's go back to rule number one. If this is the Bible and God's Word, and we believe that it is, then there are no contradictions in the Bible. Am I in the right church? There are no contradictions in this book. We've got to start there, or you're going to miss what Jesus is trying to teach us. You see, faith cometh by and hearing by the Word of God. Now, at the beginning of this year, I I wish I could have, uh, uh, I wish I could tell you that I just sat down and planned out all these sermons on faith. And uh, I didn't do that. Uh, Things that... uh, Union Baptist Church and other had prevented uh, that kind of extra planning and things, but I believe the Lord has 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 blessed and and put some things together and and I want to preach about the price of faith because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is free. You cannot purchase faith, but it's going to cost you. 
Faith is not free. But you can't buy it. Oftentimes talking to young couples, and it is hard to forge a biblical relationship in this wicked world in which we live today. And the Bible is very clear that we need to abstain from physical relationship with each other until after you're married. You believe that? Yes, I believe that. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And I'll promise you this, if you follow it, you'll reap the benefits. It's a wonderful thing to just follow the Bible. But you see, the physical relationship is really the fruits of your spiritual and emotional and mental, all the other aspects of a relationship between a man and a woman. The the physical part of that is just simply the fruits. And what God intends you to do during that dating relationship, if I can use that word, or uh, I hate to use the word courtship anymore because some people who think they understand what the Bible said have hijacked that term and turned it into something that has nothing to do with the actual building of a love relationship between a man and a woman. You can't engineer that stuff. Read Solomon. He said it's a mystery. You know what? I'm glad there's still some unsolvable mysteries. Like, why does my wife love me? I'm I'm never hoping to solve that one. I'm just going to enjoy it. Let me tell you something. We live in a world where everybody wants to go down to the corner fruit market and buy the fruit. But God wants you to take the time to grow it. That's what faith is about. You can't purchase the fruits of faith. There are no shortcuts. In fact, I want to challenge you from the outset Whatever you had going for you in your unsaved life is not going to be an aid to you in your saved relationship with God. In fact, you're going to have to get rid of it so that God can put something far better than anything you had in this world. Every once in a while, I'll run into someone and they'll say, well... I had all of this training and great success in the, oh, oh, let's just take in the business world. And and now that I'm a Christian businessman, I want to show you how to run a Christian business and order your affairs. Well, what did you just tell me? That everything you learned about business and all your success in business you had without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And now you're going to put a band-aid of faith over top of me and over top of that worldly knowledge and you're going to repackage it as Christian and hand it to me. I don't want it. I, I want something that is all the way Bible. That's what's going to help. Amen? Hello? We still together? Now, I'm not going to tell you that the word hate in this verse doesn't mean hate. Because that's the word. Look it up in the dictionary. You can look it up in the Greek if you want. Uh, You can look it up in any language. If it's honestly translated, the word hate means hate. Now, how in the world am I supposed to hate my wife and be fit to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, I've met some couples over the years who say, Pastor, that part's easy. No, you missed it. You missed it completely. You're so far out. We haven't even gotten you in the parking lot yet. Oh, my. That, that's not what it's talking about here. But the word hate means hate. And the list of people stands... And let's just look through it very quickly. Father, oh my, 
Here comes Sigmund Freud. See, every problem you have in your life is because you hate your father. And the ones that are left over is because you hate your mother. Oh, come on, give me a break. Sigmund Freud was not right about anything. But it says father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters. And then it gives another phrase in there that should shed a little bit of light on what Jesus is talking about. Did you get that last verse there? And his own life also. Do you think that's what Paul may have been talking about in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, That which was counted gain to me, I counted loss for Christ. That in the next verse, verse 8, when he said, And do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Do you think maybe that's what Paul was giving commentary on, was this statement of Jesus about hating his own life? Uh, Let me tell you something. Paul had a good life. Everything, uh, before Paul was saved, everything in his life, you and I, if we had met him, would say, there goes a good man. He's not like the rest of those Pharisees. He's not a hypocrite. He actually believes that. And he lives it. That was Paul's testimony. Paul was a great man when it comes to the knowledge of the Bible. He knew his Bible cover to cover. I mean, he understood everything except what it meant to be saved. That he didn't understand. And so here's what Jesus says. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't want to take time this morning to deal with this other than just to make a simple statement. To be Jesus' disciple takes faith. Would you agree with me on that statement? I don't think we need to spend a lot of time explaining that. If we're going to be Jesus' disciple, we've got to have faith. You, You just can't. You can't disassociate Jesus the living word, from Jesus, the written word. Uh, These are his words. This is how we get faith. This is how we know that we love God, is by keeping his commandments. And his commandments are written down so that we can verify, so that we can know, so that we will not be the slave to our own intuition and our feelings. That we can objectively understand what obedience to Jesus Christ is. That's a whole other sermon in itself. But our faith is not subjective. It's not what I feel. Do you know that you can be 100% convinced and totally feeling wrong? How many of you have ever been there? I mean, we all have at one time or another. I'm absolutely sure I'd stake my life on it. Well, it's a good thing you didn't. Because you'd have lost. But see, our faith is not like that. Our faith is based on the written words of God. And here Jesus says, listen, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your own life, you got to pick up your cross and you got to follow me. 
Now, when Jesus said, bear your cross and come after me, that had an entirely different um, understanding than we have today. Because the cross was a constant reminder of the tyranny and the bloodthirstiness of the beast of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion. I mean, we here in America are having a debate of whether we should use certain drugs injected into a vein to, uh, to fulfill the, the requirements of capital punishment because it's horrible that a person would die. We have people arguing about that. Let me tell you something. The Romans had no such issues. Crucifixion was far worse. In fact, the misguided... uh, That's about the nicest word I can think of when I use the word Mel Gibson... Uh, uh, made his movie about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in trying to depict the horrors of the crucifixion, he was quoted saying, I know my movie is an R-rated movie and I want it to have a hard R-rated movie so people can understand the crucifixion. Let me tell you, he could not put on the screen what really happens during a crucifixion because the actor would die and the idiot actor said that while they were making the movie one of the uh, they were doing the beating scene and uh, the, the guy who was acting as the Roman guard slipped and actually touched Mr. Caviezel's body with the whip And he said, I went through hell to make that movie. I'm just going, I'm thankful this is on the radio. I'm thankful I'm not in the same room. That's blasphemy. How utterly revulsive and ignorant can you be to make a statement like that? And he only got one little piece of one little whip. Jesus had to take it. Everyone. When Jesus said, bear your cross, he didn't have to point forward to his crucifixion for those Jewish people to understand what the cross was all about. It was a constant thing that everyone that went to Jerusalem had to witness. You see, Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. And the place where they did the crucifixion was just outside the city walls. And everybody could see it. It wasn't hidden. You could see the silhouettes of the crosses, any person coming into the city of Jerusalem. The Romans knew what they were doing. They were installing fear in the hearts of every person living under the domination of Rome. When Jesus said, bear your cross, that was the most horrible way to die that was known in the New Testament world. You see, Jesus is telling us here that if we're going to be his disciple, we're going to have to get rid of some things. And the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church before them and the Coptics and all these other different branches of these quote-unquote ancient churches came up with this thing called uh, the monastery where people would leave the world 
In fact, the guy that started it, one of the starters, it happened different places, of course, long, complicated history, but he went outside town and piled up a little pile of stones and sat on it. And somebody came by and said, what are you doing? He said, I am escaping the evil that is in the world. So the next day, the guy he talked to came and set up on the ground beside him. And so the guy on top of the rock said, well, I'm still too close to him. So he went and got a few more rocks and piled it up a little higher. It's a history. Before it was all said and done, he had a pile of rocks 50-some feet high that he was still sitting on top of. And 3,000 people were camped out at the base of this pile of rocks, all trying to get alone and get away from the world. Now, if that doesn't sound like stupid, I don't know what does. See, Jesus said, here's the way I want you to do it. He said, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your own life. You've got to pick up your cross. And you've got to follow me. That is discipleship. And then he gives us a couple of stories to help us understand it. Parables. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he've laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, the world is full of monuments of men who started something and didn't finish it. And Jesus said, listen, if you're going to build a tower, you need to sit down and count the cost and make sure that you have what it's going to take to finish it. Otherwise, it's just going to become a mockery to you and your understanding and your testimony. In fact, as we're doing all these filings at the building department, trying to get some repairs done on this building in Brooklyn... You know what the first thing they want? Well, not first thing, second or third thing they want. You've got to tell them what repairs you're doing, and then you have to tell them how much it's going to cost. And if you don't prove how much it's going to cost, then they're going to come back and throw your plans out at you and say, uh, this, you can't do that job for this amount of money. We don't want you starting something you can't finish. Well, that's probably a pretty good thing, wouldn't you think? And Jesus said, listen, I want you to think about this thing. You see, there's a lot of people that think faith in Jesus Christ is merely fire insurance. And by that, we're talking about hellfire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Well, believe in Jesus. Okay, I believe in Jesus. Now, wait a minute. You didn't say anything about giving up my fill-in-the-blank. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus right here, I think that list is pretty complete, wouldn't you say? If you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your your children, your brethren, your sisters, you hate your own life, is there anything left... You see, that's why this sermon is entitled, The Price of Faith. You see, faith demands the loss of everything. And this is where the sermon's going to get tough, and you're going to have to listen very closely. You're going to misunderstand me. The best way I know how to illustrate it is simply this. How many of you have ever tried to use your relationship with another person to manipulate their behavior? Now, don't raise your hand. 
Because if you're alive, you've done it more than once. Do you get what I'm saying here? How many of you have ever tried to modify someone's behavioral patterns through the relationship, whether that be boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, brother, sister, mother, uh, parent, child? How many of you have tried to get somebody to change their behavior based on your relationship with them? How many of you have had someone do that to you? How many of you understand the pain and the suffering that that kind of behavior brings into the human race? Are, are we still together? You see, as a human being, there's something in me that looks out for me first. Would anyone want to argue that point? Because you'll lose. I could tell you some horrible stories that illustrate that point. There's some stories in the Bible that even involve cannibalism because of people who are trying to preserve their own life at the expense of others. It's a terrible, terrible thing. This world is so full of manipulation. Of people trying to make other people do things. And listen, I know we have everyone's best interest at heart. How many of you believe that about Obamacare? How many of you believe the IRS has your best interest at heart? I mean, if you do, please sign up for counseling. I I will try to help you through this. You see, if I'm not willing to count the cost of being a disciple, we're, we're going to get to that in just a second here, there are things that are worth less than worthless. And Jesus is going to give it, illustrate that. But the second story that he gives here to help us understand, he said, Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. What king, what military leader is going to start a war that's going to ensure his utter destruction? Well, I can think of a few recent examples. Uh, Does anybody remember Saddam Hussein? I'll tell you one of the greatest stories. uh, 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 The guy, Gaddafi, from Libya, is that the right name? When they saw him drag the, they saw those soldiers drag Saddam Hussein out of that spider hole. He was on the front page the next day. I surrender. That's not happening to me. He had a little more sense, didn't he? But you know what we knew today? We have gotten so much of this positive thinking and possibility and all of this. That we just take the ostrich approach to life. Well, I just think it's going to get better. I do. I'm an optimist. Uh, I hope that's not you today. Because that's not very wise. We have the truth here. 
It's written down in the Word of God. Amen? And Jesus is simply saying, if you're going to build a building, you better make sure you can finish it before you start. And if you're going to start a war, you better make sure that you can win the war before you start it. Now, everybody believes they can win the war. I'm just glad some of these people have lost. Amen? How about you? I'm glad Hitler lost. I really am. And I'm glad that the Russians lost the Cold War. So far. I'm glad. Because it gives us a little more freedom to get the gospel out and to keep serving the Lord. But here's what Jesus says in verse 33. He says, So likewise... Just like these two people I talked about here, the builder and the king. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So this puts the the word hate in its proper context, does it not? Is I am forsaking all so that I can serve Christ. I have to leave it behind. Paul said, and do count it but dung. I think that qualifies pretty well for the word hatred. I think that describes uh, vividly what Jesus is talking about here. That I don't want to have any part in that. I've got to let go. And then he gives us this uh, summary at the end here. He says, salt is good. And salt is good. Salt has so many Wonderful uses. And we can preach a whole sermon on salt if we wanted to, but don't this morning. It says, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewithal shall it be seasoned? How many of you have ever went to the cupboard and got the salt shaker out and went to turn it over and nothing moved? We had that happening fairly regularly around our house, and we just couldn't figure it out until one day walked in the kitchen, and there was one of the little ones uh, all over the top of the salt shaker. Well, now we know why the salt's all gummed up at the bottom of the salt shaker. Gross. Have you ever taken salt that was all blocked up and tried to chip it apart? And what does it taste like? Nothing. There's nothing to it. The the saltiness, the savor is gone. Poor salt is worthless. Now, here it says, It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. And I always wondered... What it meant, salt being fit for the land. But uh, you'll find that there were two purposes for salt. uh, One that's spoken of in the Bible for the land. It was when God sent the children of Israel through the land of Edom and said, I want you to fill the fields with with, uh, stones and I want you to sow the earth with salt so that you can destroy the productive value of the land. Now, if you try to do that with savorless salt, guess what? You're not going to accomplish anything. I also found out when I was trying to raise a lime tree in my office. My kids got me a lime tree for Father's Day, and I'm sitting here going, oh, I just love this, I can't wait, and it died. But it had a warranty, so I sent in, and they sent me another one. It died. And and I said, what should I do? And they said, put salt in the ground. I said, that'll kill it. I said, no, no, no. This is the last ditch effort. If if the leaves fall off, try a little salt and see. Well, but if you use savorless salt, it didn't work. It died anyway. The problem was light. Uh, There's not enough sunlight in my office to keep the tree alive. And so I gave it to Brother Sharavia, and he's got it out at his place, and it's doing all kinds of great things, and I'm happy for him. But uh, 
So salt has uses. It can either destroy the, uh, the fruitfulness of the land or in some cases used sparingly in the right way. It, it can actually increase the uh, fertility of the land. It says it's not fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. Do you get that? Savorless salt is not even worth the trip to get rid of it to the garbage dump. How can you have trash that is so worthless that it's not even worth the effort to throw it away right? I mean, if we took salt and threw it out in the side yard on the concrete, what's going to happen? Well, we do that every time it snows, don't we? And the rain comes and or the snow comes and it melts and it rinses it all away and it's all gone forever. Down the sewers and all that. It's But salt that doesn't have any savor won't even melt the snow. It's not worth the trip. And Jesus is saying a Christian with half faith is just like savorless salt. It's not even worth the trip to the dump to get rid of you. I don't know how you can be any stronger than that. You can't be a half disciple. You can't live by half faith. You have to make a choice. And see, the price of faith is this. Everything. You have to give Jesus your life. Every part of it. Every hope. Every aspiration. Every joy. Every sorrow. Because he'll do a better job with it than you can. How many could say amen to that? You know, people have tried to do all kinds of things to control other people. Haven't they? Do you know the best way, the safest place to have another person whom you have to have a relationship with? You know where the safest place for them to be? in Jesus do you know if they're in Jesus and you're in Jesus if you both stay there you have to get along with each other do you think that's what 1 John was talking about when he says and and by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments You see, when I love God and keep His commandments, I am free to love other people because I'm not expecting anything. I'm not trying to get anything. I'm not trying to modify their behavior, even though it could be very wrong. There is no torture like the torture of a somebody trying to help you. We don't need that kind of help. Because the only person that can change your heart is God. And if you won't submit to God, I can't make you. But I can make me. Do you think that's what Jesus meant when he said, bear his cross and follow me? Now, does that mean we shouldn't call sin, sin? No, that's not what it's talking about here. What is being spoken about in this passage is your personal discipleship relationship with God. Now, where is it going to be? What is it going to be? Are you going to be the builder that started out and failed? Are are you going to be the king that declared war 
and lost the battle. Or are you going to end up worthless than something that is worthless? <coughs> worthless. So worthless that it's not even worth the effort to go to the garbage dump to get rid of you. That's what Jesus said happens to a person that doesn't have real, true faith. You cannot have faith in Jesus and control anything else. You know how hard it is to let your hands off the steering wheel of life? How many of you have ever driven through a car wash? Have you ever done that? It's an experience. And somewhere there, they will tell you, put your car in neutral. Do not touch the steering wheel. Because you can do an awful lot of damage by dropping that thing in gear and touching the gas pedal. And they got little carriers that will pull your car through the car wash at the appropriate speed. But if you decide to jerk that steering wheel, you, you could break all the equipment and get stuck in there. That would be interesting, now wouldn't it? Actually, they, I'm sure somebody's got funny videos about that. But it, it takes an incredible amount of effort. In fact, here's how much effort it takes. If a man hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's how much effort it takes. It takes everything you have to have faith. Because faith doesn't come from you. If you can figure it out, it's not faith. If you know what God ought to do, can I promise you God's not going to do it? Because he doesn't need your knowledge. God is not here to endorse you. He wants us to get rid of ourself and surrender to Him. Now, next week's sermon is going to be about what happens in your life when you do that. So, this week is kind of... But I'll tell you, how many of you remember the struggle that you had to go through to get saved? That you had to stop trusting in your church and your priest and your tradition and your family and your good works and all of the things that you did. And you finally fall prostrate face down at the foot of the cross of Jesus and say, I give up. I just ask you to save me. I believe that you did it all. That's how you get saved. Can I tell you something? If you want to live by faith, that's how you got to live by faith the same way you got saved. So many times we finally get to that point to where we trust Jesus as our Savior and we dust ourselves off and say, okay, God, I'm ready for you to use me. And God says, I don't want what you have. Your old life is so bad that I call it being born again because there's nothing in your old life I want to reuse. I just want the shell. And then I'm going to fill it full of faith. And I'm going to make you a different person. Because the Holy Spirit of God is living on the inside. And all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the truth in this verse. It is a hard truth. 
but you didn't mean it to be an easy one. And Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to open our eyes just a little bit to the things that have happened to us in our lives. And yes, Lord, even things that we have done to others. Because we didn't give up everything to faith. Lord, we, I believe, the vast majority of people here today are here because they want to live by faith. That's how the Bible says the Christian ought to live. The just shall live by faith. It's a personal faith. The circumstances in our lives are very different one from the other. But the answer is the same. And Lord, I pray that you would allow these words of Jesus to open our eyes to see ourselves as we are. And to see the price that faith demands. And that we'd be willing to count that cost. That we'd be willing to engage in that battle. Praise God, you did not call us to fight the devil. But we do have to fight ourselves. Yet, Lord, through your grace, we can have the victory. And we're asking for that victory today. We ask you to work in lives. And if there be someone here today that has yet to settle the issue of their salvation that they'd be willing to allow somebody to take the Bible and just show them what the Bible says. We ask you to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as Andrew comes and leads us in the hymn of invitation.